Hello and welcome to Frank Fryer Fridays. This is Father Patrick Bykowskis broadcasting from St. Dominic Priory in St. Louis, Missouri. And today, Friday, February the 11th, is the World Day of the Sick. It's something that we have recognized in the Catholic Church for the last 30 years. It happens to fall on the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes, of course, the devotion to uh, the Blessed Virgin Mary and Lourdes is especially attached to physical healing. And so I'm going to begin today with a prayer for the World Day of the Sick. Merciful God, you care for your people with the strength of a father and the tenderness of a mother, and you desire to give us new life in the Holy Spirit. You sent Jesus, your Son, as Savior of all people. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom and healed those who suffered from illness and disease. We ask you to send the grace of your Son to us now, that he may bring healing and hope to all who suffer with infirmity and sickness. Send the Holy Spirit to depart that new life which comes from Jesus, your Son, through the power of his death and resurrection. May the same life-giving Spirit sustain and enlighten all who care for the sick and infirm, and all who seek cures for the diseases that inflict our human condition. Through Christ, our healer and Lord. Amen. Mary, health of the infirm, pray for us. And of course, that prayer takes on special meaning meaning this year as we continue to uh, deal with the consequences of the, our, the pandemic that we've been living with now for two years. I have a great guest today. Father Chris, or Father, <laughs> I've just, I've just uh, given you a new title there, uh, Professor Beam, if you're listening. Professor Christopher Beam, and you'll hear this in the, in the uh, interview, uh, wrote an article that was brought to my attention by Father Charles Bouchard, one of the Dominicans here in St. Louis, and it is uh, especially appropriate, I think, for all of us when we are experiencing uh, all the frustrations we have of late on the political side of things with how does our how is our government working and and what does Thomas Aquinas of all people have to say about it well that we should not lose hope and that's the topic of our conversation today uh, Professor Beam is at Penn State University he's a political science professor there and he has his own podcast it's called Democracy Works, and I certainly uh, give a strong endorsement of, of listening to his podcast as well. And he's got a book coming up that you'll talk about in the interview. So welcome again to Frank Fire Fridays, and here's my interview with Professor Christopher Beam. Professor Chris Beam to Frank Fire Fridays, wonderful to have you with us. Thank you. Pleasure and, to be here. Yes. And you're you're uh, a political science professor at Penn State, right? That's right. You know, many of the people that are going to be listening in are diehard Purdue University people. So, um, well, that's we have too a... bad. It could happen <laughs> to anybody. <laughs> well, you know, and I, well, I was undergraduate at Notre Dame, so I, I come by my, you know, animus towards Purdue you know, quite honestly, so. My goodness. Well, you know, I was looking at your CV. I didn't see the Notre Dame part. You have a lot of Catholic education there. You I have do. Marquette and DePaul. 
Yeah, and, and I actually uh, was in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps for a year after college, too. Oh, oh my goodness. But what, what faith tradition are, do you follow? Well, um, you know, um, Episcopalian, uh, we, uh -huh. we, you know, we, uh, we, we were, we just moved here to Penn State. And so it's been a little harder to do that, especially with COVID and all. But uh, yeah, the, uh, Anglican is probably uh, what I would say is the most accurate answer to that question. Okay. Well, uh, the, the interesting thing is, let me ask you a, a couple other things before we get into our discussion. So you are uh, the director of, besides being a political science professor there at Penn State, you're also director of, oh my goodness, and now I can't find it. No, 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 I'm, I'm actually managing director. So that there is a director and then me, the managing director, and it's the McCourtney Institute for Democracy. And what is that, what is that role? <sighs> what, well, what is the um, you know, as you might, no, um, democracy is not, you know, doing great right now, either in the United States or around the world. And uh, the Institute's been around since 2012. And, and the uh, objective is to, we call ourselves partisans for democracy. So uh -huh. we don't, um, we don't, you know, make any kind of partisan statement uh, or, you know, take sides, but we do take sides with respect to democracy versus something else, something sure. less. Sure. So, okay. so we do that through research, outreach, um, education, you know, mm -hmm. stuff Great. that you do in college. So, yeah. Well, one thing my listeners know, but you don't, is that although I'm a, uh, a Roman Catholic, a Dominican friar, uh, I am. Uh, I come with a sort of a, some baggage. And I came late to, to religious life. I was involved in partisan politics for oh, interesting. quite a long time. I was a political science major and late in life, I responded to the call, but I, I, I worked in partisan politics for 24 years, 18 of those in Washington, DC, and then wow. six in Illinois. And, you know, I, I joke, uh, Maybe you, because you're more involved in politics, will will get it. Some people don't. I, I I tell people that I worked for three Illinois governors, and only one of them ended up in prison. Yeah, and those are very good odds. Yeah, Illinois. That's not bad for Illinois. <laughs> no, it's yeah, not bad. Well, Chris, again, thank you for being with us, and and to my listening audience, the reason why I re I reached out to uh, Professor Bean um, is that. One of my my Dominican brothers, uh, Father Charles Bouchard, who used to be the president of the Aquinas Institute and is a medical ethicist by training, and he works for the Catholic Hospital Association here in St. Louis. So I see quite, uh, quite a lot of him. And he uh, sent me, sent all of the province an article. So that means all 200 men in our province, uh, an article uh, the title of which is what 13th century Christian theologian Thomas Aquinas can teach us about hope in times of despair. A long title. Yeah. The subtitle is hope more realistic than spare despair. Aquinas thinks so. So of course, you know, Thomas Aquinas is, is after St. Dominic, our maybe most famous uh, Dominican friar, 
in the history, 800 year history of our order. And so this article intrigued me, especially since it also uh, speaks to the political climate in our country right now. And as, as you said, Chris, beyond really, uh, as far as uh, democracy being under attack in so many different places. Why, so in, in, in your angle, Ken, you know, why spend time uh, with Aquinas? Uh, what, does, what does Aquinas have to, to say to us on topics like this? Hmm. And why is it Anglican too? Of course, you know we might think that oh, you know Thomas Aquinas is only speaking to us Romans, but no, no. I mean, I think you know uh, there's a lot to say to that. I mean, you know Thomas is uh, regarded as the you know the most important interpreter of Aristotle, mm -hmm. and you know um, my my training my um, my PhD is in ethics, uh, eth social ethics. And mm -hmm. so, you know, we and it was actually at uh, a divinity school. And so, um, you know, we read Thomas um, and, you know, understand him to be an important, well, essential figure in the development of ethics in the, in the Western tradition. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, that's, you know, so that's why I, I know him. But, you know, what when I was you know, the, the, the reason for this or this article was I was listening to a lot of people who were talking about, you know, hope for the future, hope about democracy, um, you know, and, and for that matter, climate change and, and you know, a whole hope, a whole us, other issues. And it, it bothered me that they were, you know, using hope as a synonym for optimism, that there was mm -hmm. nothing really behind it. And, you know, I have a bad feeling that with regards to, you know, democracy in the United States and um, and climate change, there's going to be a lot of things that are going to happen that are going to optimism and very hard not to despair. And I remember that Thomas had said, you know, that that hope is is much different from that, that hope is mm -hmm. um, is an act of will. And it is it's something that um, abides irrespective of, you know, the specific circumstances. And I thought that that was something that um, that, you know, we needed to uh, to articulate and, and to um, to kind of figure out how we can we can come to that more substantial notion of of, of hope uh, to, to really sustain us through through the challenges that I think are coming. Could that are here and that are coming. Yeah. Could you explain that a little bit more, Chris, how hope can be an act of will? Well, for, you know, I mean, so Thomas is uh, interpreting Aristotle. Aristotle um, says that ethics is all the, the ethical act is always between two extremes, the deficiency right. and the excess. So the simplest one is, you know, the virtue of courage is found between recklessness and cowardice, right? Mm -hmm. So, and and finding that that golden mean, with as what he calls it, is is not an easy thing, right? You have to. It depends on circumstances and a variety of specific things that are going to change, not just in terms of what you're dealing with at the moment, but moment by moment within that different that unique set of circumstances. And so Thomas does something very similar with hope. He says that on the one hand. 
um, if you are just confident, and he's talking about really about your, your salvation, right? But he says, if you're just confident that you're going to, that you don't have to worry that God is, you know, loves you and that you can do whatever you want and not have to worry about your, you know, your, your eternal soul, that is a kind of recklessness, right? Mm -hmm. If you, on the other hand, you say, I am too far gone. There's no way God loves me. There's nothing I can do to be saved. That is despair. And that is um, a deficiency. And so hope is found between those two extremes. And because it is there, you know, it doesn't mean that you, and in the middle there, it doesn't mean that you are, um, you are going to just let things go and say, oh, well, it's all going to be fine, which is kind of similar to a way people frame optimism. But it also mm -hmm. means that you can't um, just give up. You are constrained to say there, there, this is a realistic, if not, um, uh, not, not uh, likely outcome. And what I need to do is to um, accept that if it's going to happen, I have to uh, do the work necessary to make it happen. And so that's why it's an act of will. It, it is something that, you know, it, it can't happen. You can't hope that you're going to be able to fly around the room, right? You mm -hmm. can't hope that you're going to live forever. Those are not realistic. And therefore, for Thomas, they're not legitimate. But you can hope, in Thomas's language, that, um, that you can be saved, that you can be, you know, reunited with God. And for me, you can hope that democracy is going to be sustained and is going to endure. But if you're going to hope for it, that means you have to accept your own responsibility of making that happen. And so what might we be able to do? Let me, I just want to add a little sidebar. It only deals with presumption. You know, almost all the people that I have on uh, as listeners are, are Catholic, I think. Uh, there's, this comes up often in the, in the confessional that people confess the sin of presumption and 99.9% of the time they're, they're wrong about what they, <laughs> what they, how they divine the, the sin of presumption. They think that sin of presumption is that they've sinned because they think God is going to forgive them anyway. And I said, well, you see, if you were truly guilty of the sin of presumption, you wouldn't be sitting here in this confessional. Uh, you would think, I don't have to do anything. Right. And God is going to forgive me. But you are sitting here right. seeking God's forgiveness and mercy. And so you're not guilty of the sin of presumption. It's when you just say, as you did, there's nothing I have to do. There's nothing uh -huh. that we can do. And, you know, so so Chris what do we, what do we do? Say we're, you know, we're, we're uh, people that are, we recognize that um, there's something that, you know, we, we, we don't want to despair. We don't want to say, well, uh, you know, that, have you seen this new movie that's out, Don't Look Up? Yes. You know, and it's this, this sort of, in a way, contrary to the expression, sticking your head in the sand instead of, you know, there's this, there's this, for those who haven't seen it, I recommend it. It's, it, it came out really um, before the pandemic, or it started in production before the pandemic, but it's as if, if we just ignore problems, then they're going to go away. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, of course, is the, the other side of uh, the, the equation that we were talking about. Um, 
so what do we do? What do we do as people that, that care? I mean, how do we get the, the, the other people who are um, presuming that, well, we don't have to do anything um, to get ourselves out of this, that it's just this sort of normal course of, whether it's, whether it's climate change or uh, the, the way that we're voting, what do, what do we do? How do we respond? Yeah, you know, I'm going to give you the, 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 um, the, the worst possible answer. I have a book coming out. <laughs> oh, that's, <laughs> that's okay. Called, uh, yeah, it, uh, it's called the, Democratic Vir- the Seven Democratic Virtues and what we can do right now to, to, uh, you know, to fight um, polarization. Seven Democratic tr- Virtues? Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, and so that's I mean, and the reason for the book is because people kept asking me that question. They found out what I did for a living or they, you know, they knew me and they said, what can I do? Right. And, you know, and when you look at the world of, um, you know, politics and the media, you know, there's a lot of power there that is outside your hands. There's a lot of things that are going on that you can't do anything about. But. Um, there is my my I guess my my primary um, argument is that right now um, our politics is a product of a, a, a broken culture, and so we need to um, re-engage the sense that there is a there are virtues that are required of all of us as democratic citizens, and that's something that the founders were completely explicit about that it's not simply a matter of creating this structure, uh, procedures, mechanisms for democracy. It, there's something that all of us have to do if, if, you know, because we, all of us democratic citizens are sovereign. We're the rulers, right? We all have a little tiny piece of that. And so if we're going to do that, that brings responsibilities. And the way we do that responsibly is um, by affirming um, these democratic virtues. So, so that's, I mean, that's my argument. And, you know, you'll have to wait until what I think September and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and but but I mean I use Thomas in that in that book too because I you know I, I talk about democratic faith and democratic charity and you know I talk about them as non-theological theological virtues right so you know you can't talk about um, you know there's a there's a first amendment there's an establishment clause which I think is a good thing and so I don't want to um, you know, say, make an argument that's only for Christians, um, you know, but I do want to say that there's something we can, we can take from, from Thomas, uh, and his, and his notion of what faith is and what charity is. And we can use that, um, and we can apply it to a democratic context, which is basically what that article was about too. Is there, um, in thinking about this question, uh, where where have we, especially when you think about the last, and again, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to be partisan, but <clears throat> is there something that we that we, where we really failed in the last, like say four years in a way that we might be able to say, okay, we can, st- we can still fix this. Um, well, I mean, you know, I mean, there, 
I, I think a lot of people, and myself included, uh, are inclined to put a lot of, uh, you know, responsibility for for our condition on, you know, the behavior of Donald Trump. And and I, you know, I don't want to undercount that. I mean, you know, there's just no two ways about it. This is not a virtuous man. This is not a man who has any concern for honesty or humility or or charity. And and so I think and and there's also been this effort to I think on the part of his rhetoric to act as if being uh, a good partisan and even more being an American patriot means being a jerk, being a, 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 a not kind person to, to people who you disagree with. And so I do feel like there's something to that. But I also want to just you know quickly step in and say, you know, there's a reason why Donald Trump was elected. And that reason goes back to, um, you know, 40 years of a, of a culture that has just slowly been chipping away at these norms of behavior. And, and I've written before on how um, our society, my, my generation, and I, and I think our generation uh, just completely abandon our responsibility to uh, teach young people how to be Democrats, how to be uh, citizens, and what those responsibilities are, and how we should behave, and and how we should treat each other, how we should argue. None of these things are easy. None of these things are natural. And in fact, if anything, they're unnatural. Tribalism is natural, um, and so democracy is hard. And if you don't help people learn what what is required of them and how they function uh, successfully in a democracy, they're not going to do it. And so, you know, you can argue that that's been going on since the 70s or 80s, that we've just abandoned that, that, you know, civics now, if we teach it at all, we teach simply these facts about, you know, uh, you know, bicameral legislature and three houses of, of, of the federal government and checks and balances and, and, you know, the pocket veto and that's it, right? Which is fine. It's nothing, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's much more to it, much more to it. And, and because we haven't done that, um, it's no accident that uh, people find themselves in a position where they don't know how to engage people um, responsibly. And especially people with whom they disagree. Yeah, you know, there's <clears throat> now. I no longer live in West Lafayette. I live in St. Louis, and I'm uh, uh, working campus ministry still, but at Washington University instead of Purdue University. But I still, I still have a lot of contact with Purdue University, and uh, the president there is Mitch Daniels, uh -huh. uh, and. He has gotten a lot of pushback, and I, I'm not—I can't say I'm following it closely, but I do get get, get uh, some some press releases and those sorts of things. I—I—I'll—I'll I'll admit I'm—I'm I'm, I'm kind of a fan of his because he was always a fan of the, our, our parish there, St. Thomas Aquinas, as a matter of fact, huh. uh, on the campus of Purdue University. And he, even though he's Presbyterian, he was always a, really a, a support of ours. He is, he's gotten a lot of pushback from the, the Senate, the, the uh, 
of the university. So it's made up of the professors. On, on in, instituting civics as a, as a requirement for, Interesting. Gra- for graduation. Um, what do you think about that as, as apropos of your remarks on our lack of awareness as, you know, maybe we know, uh, you know, you check off some of the box about what we need to know about American politics, but uh, how we might be able to instill in individuals how they can impact it. And maybe, I don't know that his, you know, the, that that curriculum would be involved in uh, uh, civil discourse, but maybe it is right. part of it as well and part of a, Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't want to say anything, you know, specifically because I have no idea what's in it. But I I, but and and I also think that, you know, there is something almost endemic to any um, higher education that's worth its name that, you know, teaches you to be self-critical. Right. To examine, to assume that you're going to be biased and to develop uh, uh, tools for which by which you can um, challenge yourself. Right. And consider, you know, the other side and evaluate arguments as objectively as possible. And I think that is um, in and of itself a kind of civic education. But I also think you, you see this. Um, what is the the president of Johns Hopkins just wrote a book, The Idea of Democracy. I think it's Daniels, I think is his name. So I do feel like there's a, there are people throughout higher education who are, um, you know, thinking about what is our responsibility in, mm-hmm. in, this, in this current crisis? And, and what do we owe, you know, the nation? And, you know, Penn State is a, is a land-grant university. That is in our charter. Right. right to to serve the you know the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Well, how are we doing that? And if we're not doing that with respect to democracy, you know, how can we say we're doing it at all? Right. right. And so, um, so I do feel like there, you know, these are questions that are, you know, exigent at the moment that we have to ex- examine. But I also think they are incumbent upon us, given our our you know our role in society. Sure. Right. Well, um, Chris, I, I really appreciate your, your taking time to be with us today. And I, I want to, you know, one of the, you know, of course, I'm a, a huge fan of St. Thomas Aquinas. And I think sometimes we as Catholics do fail to recognize that um, the saints of our church, uh, and, and Thomas is one of those, but there's others as well, have uh, something to to contribute to our discourse and to be aware of the 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 the, uh, uh, the teachings of Thomas, especially when it regards things like ethics uh, and how we live um, an excellent life. Uh, have something has something to say to 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 all of us. Uh, so. Uh, your, you know, your, your engaging him is, is uh, I think, a very important way that um, we can get people to understand that the, the, the wisdom of, of, of writers from 800 years ago still speaks to us today. Well, yeah, I mean, he's a, he's a really, really smart guy. <laughs> yeah. and, and you should take him seriously. You're, you know, not as, I mean, whether you take him seriously as a saint, that's up to you. But taking right. him seriously as a thinker, I think, is incumbent on anybody who 
wants to be a serious thinker, yeah. <laughs> especially about virtue. Right, right. Well, again, uh, thank you, Chris. And tell me, the, tell me the title of your book again. Is it Seven, Seven Democratic Virtues? That's right, yeah. And yeah, Penn State Press, it'll be coming out in August or September. I'm not sure, okay. but I'm just doing the copy edits now. So, All right. Well, who's going to be publishing it? Penn State Press. Penn State Press, all right. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, again, thank you, Chris. It was great to be with you. And uh, Same here. Doing, I enjoyed the conversation. You're good, doing good work out there. We're trying. We're trying, as are we all. Keep, keep, keeping, keeping, uh, trying to keep hope alive. So. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. God bless you. Thanks. Chris. All right. Same here. Bye.